If you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together. James chapter 2. Uh, James chapter 2, and this morning we're going to be looking at uh, the last portion of this chapter, verses 14 through 26. Uh, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. If you found your way there, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Starting at verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the Scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the word without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And you can be seated this morning. As we come to these verses this morning, we come to a really vitally important, but also often misunderstood passage of Scripture. Uh, it's perhaps one of the most controversial passages of Scripture. Uh, with some in the past accusing James of setting himself at variance with the teachings of the Apostle Paul, saying that what James is teaching here is in a complete contradiction to what Paul taught. However, as we will see uh, in just a moment, and as we go through this morning, we'll see that as in most cases, when you have a passage of Scripture that is misunderstood or controversial, that a little bit of time spent in understanding the background and the context of what's going on will help to make all things clear. And so as we look at this, we'll understand that James's intent um, here will we'll see much clarity brought to the situation. We'll look at it a little bit more later on in the sermon, but as we begin, I wanted to say it this way, that Paul, as he is writing there in Romans and other places, is writing about those who are being saved. That's who he is addressing. He's addressing those who are newly saved or being saved. They're in that early stage of Christianity, whereas James here is writing to those who have been saved already. They're living out their Christian faith. These are those who have been saved for a while. So that importantly sets the context of who James is talking to and who Paul's talking to. And so as we go through the sermon this morning, you're going to see the differentiation between what James is trying to teach those who have been saved and what Paul was trying to teach those who were being saved. Now, James's purpose in this section is really very clear. He, he says it several times in here, but it's to teach us that faith, true saving faith, does not exist apart from good works, or the exhibiting of good works. Now, let me say clearly this morning, before we even begin, James, nowhere in this book, says that we are saved by our works. But what he's saying is that a saving faith will also be a faith that works. It will be a faith that is evidenced by how we live out our 
faith. And I really believe that the reason that many people today don't like what James teaches here, and they try to cause it to stand in opposition to the rest of the Gospels, is because it seems to cast a spotlight on the lack of saving faith in their own life. Because if what James is saying here is true, and you have someone who claims the name of Christ, but yet nothing in their life demonstrates that saving faith, what James is saying here is that you don't have faith at all. It's very clear. what James is not trying to be critical. He's not trying to be harsh. In fact, as we've seen all the way through this book, James is doing all of this in a very kind and loving and brotherly way because he wants people to understand that faith must be demonstrated by works. And that if there's nothing there, if there's nothing being exhibited in your life, then you do not have saving faith. And so for many people, they read this and they hear this, and it, it begins to cast a spotlight, because this is really what James is doing. He's, he's shining a spotlight on these areas and these things in people's lives, and it makes people uncomfortable. Because if you look at your own life, and we're not here this morning to be the salvation police, we're not here this morning to say, oh, well, look at brother so-and-so, there's no works in his life. Now, James here is first calling a person to an introspective perspective. He says, look here at your life, look what you're exhibiting or what you're not exhibiting, because that's going to bear a testimony of whether you have true saving faith. So he walks through this passage this morning and really gives us some examples of what our faith should not look like before he then gives us an example of what it should look like. I want you to first notice in verse 14 that faith that is empty of works lacks true possession. Faith that is empty of works lacks true possession. Now, anytime you begin to talk of the validity of one's faith, you start to tread on ground very quickly that will get you canceled. People don't like it when you question the lack of evidence of saving faith. People don't like it when you call them to that introspective look at their own life. As I said earlier, we're not running around to be the salvation police, although I believe there is a time that comes from Scripture. As Jesus said, first remove the log from your own eye, and then you'll be able to remove the speck from your brother's eye. First, we look at our own life, and we make sure that we're where we need to be. And then if we have a brother or sister in Christ that we care about, and we look at them and we see that they're talking about that they are a Christian, talking about or professing faith, but there's no evidence in their lives, Now, we don't walk up to them and tell them, well, brother, you're just not saved. No, we go to them in brotherly love and say, hey, have you considered what the Scripture says? Have you considered what the Scripture says about what the Christian life should look like? And we do so not because we want to be right. We do so not because we want to be the one who has authority over another. We do so because we're deeply broken and concerned about them. James is not writing here because he wants to be the one who gets to point this out. James is writing this because he's brokenhearted. He does not want anyone to think that they're saved and yet not really be saved. It goes back to what Jesus was talking about there at the very beginning uh, when when, uh, Ben read this text for us in in Matthew chapter 7. When Jesus talks about the idea that many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these wonderful things? And I'll tell them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Jesus is not saying that out of anger. He's saying that out of compassion. He's saying that out of brokenheartedness. Because, brothers and sisters, there will be, Jesus says, many, not just a few, not just some, but there will be many on that day who for some reason or another, and that we'll look at in just a moment, are going to think that they have saving faith, but yet when they stand before Christ, they're going to be cast into hell forever. 
So where is the difference? What does it mean? We must note here that James saw this as an important enough issue to bring it to the attention of the church. And so it should be important to us as well. A faith that is empty of works lacks true possession. Look with me at verse 14. James writes and he says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Now, James pulls no punches here and gets straight to the heart of the matter. A faith that does not exhibit works is not a saving faith. It has no true possession. Now, recall that last week James warned them against the sin of preference and partiality, and he commanded those who he was speaking to to live as those under the law of liberty. Now, we understand that in the Old Testament, you were working for your righteousness. You had to do something. You had to make sure that you kept all the laws. You were working towards righteousness, trying to keep and trying to obey under the Judaism system. You were always working and laboring. Now, under the law of liberty, that work has been accomplished for you. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't strive to obey God, but we're not striving to obey God in order to obtain righteousness because Christ has already obtained it for us. And so, James has instructed us, live under not that old law, but now the law of liberty that's been given to you in Christ. And no doubt there were some who heard what James said, and they understood it as an excuse to just live their life however they wanted to, right? Claiming the name of Christ, but yet living a life that demonstrated no demonstrable effort or effect of a changed life. So James is going to make it clear that although we are not saved by our works, that if we have true saving faith, we will have a faith that demonstrates it by our works. Notice what James says there in verse 14. He says, what use is it, my brethren? Now, again, this is who he's talking to. He's talking to those inside the church. He says, if someone says he has faith. There's a distinguishing moment here between the one who actually possesses faith and the one who merely professes faith. Now, we understand that there's a big difference between the two. There's a big difference between the one who actually possesses faith, who actually has faith in Jesus Christ, who's repented of their sins, trusted in Christ, their life has been changed, they're living it out, and the one who merely professes that they've had a salvation experience. It's often been said that those will be many who miss heaven by 12 inches, And that's the difference between the head and the heart, because there's a difference between possessing Christ in the heart, having a changed life, and merely knowing about Him in the head, merely having a profession of faith. So James says, if a man says, he he makes that profession of faith, that he has faith, he's, he's asking the question, what kind of faith is it? Is it just a possession? Is it a possession of faith or a profession of faith? And so how do we know? If it is only a profession of faith and it is not evidenced by works, James asks the questions, can that kind of faith save him? Can that kind of faith save him? And the answer is, no, it can't. Because James says, what use is it? He says, if someone has that kind of faith that is merely a profession, but there's no evidence of work, no evidence of a changed life, no evidence of God working in him and through him, James says that that type of faith is essentially worthless and is of no good. 
Now, it seems so contradictory to us, I think, as Christians to say that there's a type of faith that is worthless. Because we often talk about faith as this wonderful thing, which it is, to have faith in Christ. We sing about faith. We sing about the importance of faith. But James is careful here to warn us that there is a type of faith, a type of belief that although can be right in many regards, if it's missing the essential characteristics of what is needed to demonstrate it to be true, is a worthless faith. So faith that is empty of works lacks true possession. Someone who claims the name of Christ, they profess the name of Christ, but they do not actually possess Him. It's demonstrated by the fact that there are no works in their Christian life. Now notice here, that James does not give a list of how many works have to be done, of what type of works have to be done. He doesn't give us a checklist of the things that we have to do or not do. But what he's saying is that there should be some demonstrable, tangible evidence of God's having worked in your life. Now, I'm sure that many of us this morning could probably think of somebody that we know in our own circles, maybe a friend, maybe a family member, I know many people that I've known who at some point in time, usually as a young person, went to Bible school, went to church, made a profession of faith, but now they don't go to church, they don't read their Bible, they don't care about what God says or does, they don't live their life in such a way as a Christian does, they're out doing things that Christians would never do, but if you were to walk up to them and say, are you a Christian, they'd say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. But James is saying, if your life does not have the characteristics, the works, the evidence, he says that that faith is of no use. The second thing I want you to notice is that faith that is empty of works lacks true compassion. Faith that is empty of works lacks true compassion. Now, the next thing that James is going to do is give us a very practical matter to illustrate the futility and the foolishness of a faith that doesn't have any type of demonstration. Look at verses 15 through 17. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Now, James here uses an example that would have hit very close to home to many of those inside the early church. You remember last week we discussed the fact that as the early church was growing and people were coming to faith in Christ, that many of them were being ostracized from their families, from their friends, from their jobs, and even from society at large. As the religious leaders and and those in control lost the power to squash the church early on, they tried to do it through killing Jesus, and he defeated them and rose from the dead, and the church continued to grow. They tried to squash it through persecution. The church continued to grow. So ultimately what they would do is just ostracize these Christians out of society. So many people lost their jobs and their homes and their livelihoods. Both scriptures and ancient historians tell of the many and various hardships that these early believers faced. The book of Acts tells us how the members of the early church would sell their possessions and bring all the money and put it together so that they had all things in common. Why were they doing that? Because so many inside the church were in need. So many inside the church were needing clothing and needing food and needing support because of the persecution that they were facing. And the family of God came together and took care of one another. 
But here in James's example, the response is much different. James describes a situation in which a brother or a sister comes to you, and they're in need of really the two most basic things that a person needs, right? He says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, I can't think of two things that are more necessary for a human existence than clothing and food, right? You can do without a phone. You can do without a car. You can even do without a a home. But you can't do without food. Ultimately, you're going to starve to death. And you can't really do without clothing. You know, surprisingly, even in the climate in which uh, James lived, in which Jesus lived, it can get pretty chilly at night there in Jerusalem sometimes. If you don't have food, you can't eat. If you don't have clothing, you can't stay warm. So both of these things are essential to human existence. And so James says that this brother or this sister comes to you and they say, listen, I'm not asking for a house. I'm not asking for anything big. I, I just need something to wear and I need some food to eat. And this example, James says, if you were to say to that person, go in peace, be warm and be filled. But then you actually didn't do anything for them. Can you imagine? Somebody comes to you. They're just in rags. They have no clothing. You can see their skin is gaunt because they've not been able to eat. And they ask for food and they ask for clothing. And you just pat them on the back and say, oh, brother, it's going to all be okay. Be filled. Be warm. Just think it in your mind. Just think, think about what it would be like to sit down to a nice meal and be filled. Think about what it would be nice to have warm clothes on your back. And then you just pat them and just send them on down the road. James says, if you do nothing to help them, he said, what use is that? What good is it to do something like that? Because are your kind words going to fill their belly? Are your warm thoughts going to keep them warm from the cold nights? Is your encouragement saying, brother, be at peace, is it going to give them the ability to not have to worry about starving or freezing to death? And of course, the answer to all of the questions here that James asks is that it is of no value. It is of no profit. It is of no good. How ridiculous would it be for someone to think that just by words that it would help take care of the desperate need that this person has? You don't just give them words, you must perform some type of action. You must do something. You must cook them a meal. You must give them clothes. You must welcome them in. You must do something in order to demonstrate what you're saying you believe. You want them to be at peace. You want them to be warm. You want them to be filled. But it's not enough just to say it, James says. You must also do something to demonstrate the intentions of your heart. And notice what James says again. He says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. As foolish as it sounds, James is saying that for one to ignore the obvious needs of a person and simply offer platitudes, so too is it when we have faith without works. He says that kind of faith without works is dead. Now, How could we have a dead faith? How could faith, if it's in the right things, how could it be dead? Remember here, James is speaking of that faith, which is a profession only and not a possession of true faith. And a false faith is not a true faith. 
Now, let me say this morning, because I understand that as human beings, we hear certain things and we begin to process it. We know that Scripture tells us that a profession is an important part of our faith. We profess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is the Lord and God raised Him from the dead. But Scripture is also clear that we must go beyond just a profession of who Christ is to a trust in Him, that we're not trusting in our own strength, we're not trusting in our own power, but we're trusting in what God did, not just believing that He was who He said He was, but that He actually accomplished those things and that those things are applied and can be applied to our own life. So here James is speaking of those who have this head knowledge of Christ but have never had a heart-changing relationship with the Lord. Now, the third thing I want you to notice here is that just like faith that is empty of works lacks true compassion, faith that is empty of works also lacks godly conviction. Look at verses 18 to 20. It lacks godly conviction. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, the demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Here, James introduces really a a seemingly a third-party conversation. Now, we don't know who it is, but many commentators believe that it's really kind of James himself speaking to someone else. He's not trying to draw attention to himself, but he wants to really demonstrate the foolishness of of what it means to say that you can have faith but have no demonstrable evidence of faith. So you have this conversation. He says, someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. So there's a contrast here. There's a contrast between one who says they just have faith and a contrast between one who says that their works are evidence of their faith. James points out the inconsistency here. Because when the person says, show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So this is James, in a sense, speaking, and he's talking to this one who would say that they have faith but have no evidence and it's not necessary. He says, show it to me. He says, because I can show you my faith by the things that I'm doing. Not that he's saved by them, not that they keep him saved. He says, but I can point to the things and show you how my faith is being evidenced, how it's being worked out, how it's being demonstrated in many different regards. He says, but if you want to show me your faith, he's basically saying you have nothing to point to. You have no way to actually show that your faith is real. And this would be true. Go back to that person uh, who we were talking about earlier, who maybe made a profession at a young age, but doesn't go to church, doesn't serve the Lord, doesn't do anything now. If you were to go up to them and say, well, how do you show me, show me that you're a Christian. The only thing that they could say is like, well, you know, I prayed a prayer in Bible school back in, in 1975. Well, what about since then? I mean, I, I prayed a prayer back in 1975. Well, what about after that? And this is the point that James is making. He says, I can show you my faith. He's like, so if you were to go to any one of us in the room and say, okay, well, 
Tell me about your Christian faith. You might say, okay, well, I was saved back in 1987. The Lord changed my life. He saved me. Well, what about since then? Oh, well, since then, you know, the Lord, has, he's growing me every day. I enjoy reading the scriptures, and I spend time in prayer every week. And I've been plugged in at my church, and I'm serving the Lord there, and we're seeing people come to faith as we go out and evangelize. I just had the opportunity to share the gospel with my neighbor the other day. I'm doing these things, and the Lord is opening these doors of opportunity. There's evidence there. The Lord is changing you. He's growing you. He's shaping you more and more into the image of Jesus. All of us in this room could point to things as Christians that the Lord has grown us in. He grows us in our desire and our love for holiness. He grows us in our desire and love for Him. He grows us in the way that He wants us to conform more into the image of Jesus. And so this is what James is saying. He says, I can show you tangible evidence of my faith through the things that I'm doing, the evidence, the works in my life. He says, but you have nothing to point to. You have nothing to say and to demonstrate the fact that your faith is real. Now he goes on in verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one. You do well, the demons also believe and shudder. He says, you believe that God is real. Now, Is that not something that we would say is essential to be a Christian, right? We need to believe that God is one, that He's the only God, that we love Him beyond all other things. There's not many gods. There's not multiple ways to God. There's one God. He says, you believe that God is one. There's this this idea of, of words or statements, this idea of religious knowledge, because on its face, religious knowledge can seem very influential, On its face, religious knowledge can seem to be very very true or very pure or very convincing. But James is helping us to understand that religious knowledge and religious belief, just at face value without anything else attached to it, doesn't matter at all either. How do we know this? Because James goes on. He says, you believe that God is one, and you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. In the original language, the word that he uses here for do, you do well is written in a very sarcastic tone. James is like, you believe that God is one. And, and you could almost imagine the person being like, oh, that's right. I do. I, I have the correct religious knowledge and understanding. And James is like, yeah, that's, that's pretty good because the demons also believe that. It's like, you're right along the line with where the demons believe. Good for you. Just belief is not enough to save. It's not enough just to believe that God is real. It's not enough just to believe that Jesus existed. It's not enough just to believe that Jesus died on the cross. You can believe all of those things and still die and go to hell. This is what James is saying, because even the demons believe. Even the demons, the demons believe that God is real and he's the only God. The demons believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The demons believe that he was born of a virgin, came and lived a sinless life, died on the cross, and that through his work on the cross, he has accomplished salvation for those who will put their faith and trust in him. The demons believe every single part of that because they know it to be true. And in fact, the only thing it causes them to do is shudder because they know the judgment of God is coming upon them at some point. 
They understand that that truth, and that truth doesn't drive them to conviction. It doesn't drive them to repentance. It just drives them to innate fear of God's judgment upon them. And so James here is being really pointed in this statement. He says, you have just the same amount of knowledge that the demons do, whereas the demons, it causes them to shudder in fear. He said, but are you, O man, verse 20, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Basically what he's saying here, he says, it causes the demons to shudder in fear, but it's not causing you to do anything. So in fact, maybe you're a little worse off than the demons do because the knowledge and the belief that you have hasn't caused you to do anything in your life. I want you to notice there in verse 20 what he says, are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow? That's strong language here. Now, we, we don't consider that strong language today, right? Calling someone foolish is not really considered uh, a very uh, s- severe uh, uh, thing in our, in our culture. But we know how serious it was in Bible times. Jesus said that you would be in danger of calling someone a fool. It's not something to be used lightly. James here is using it in proper context, but he's not using it in a light way. He's using it in a very direct and pointed way to say, you need to understand how foolish you are being because you are tampering and dabbling with something that you think you understand, but you have a complete misunderstanding of. Brothers and sisters, there's a lot of things that we can get wrong in this life and have no real effect. It have no real changing point in our life. But there are certain things that if we get wrong, it means everything. And James is here saying, it's like you believe that you have a belief, and you believe that you have faith. He says, but if your faith is not demonstrated by how the Scripture says it will be demonstrated, he says, you have a lacking faith. Faith without works is useless. Now, I can almost imagine somebody might say, well, that's just James's opinion. But remember what Jesus said? He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I commanded you to do? All throughout the scriptures, we see in Jesus's teachings and Paul's teachings and here in James's teaching that they're very clear that we're saved solely by faith alone in Christ alone. Not of our own strength, not of our own ability, not of anything that we can or ever will do. We are saved by the grace and the mercy of God. We've been justified in Christ solely by God's grace and mercy. But the scriptures are also very clear that as believers, the transformed life is one that demonstrates by the way that we live that we've been changed. It changes us, it transforms us into new creatures, and we live that life out. But for the man who's merely a professor of faith, but not a possessor of faith, he doesn't even do what Paul says the demons do here. Although he should, the lack of evidence should cause him to fear and cause him to tremble. 
As James closes with these words in this section and asks us, are you willing to recognize? It causes, again, this introspective look. Are you willing to look in your life, look at your faith, look at your proclamation, and realize that what you have is useless? It is a faith that will do nothing. It is a faith that will not and cannot save. Again, the clear statement here is that if you say you have faith, but there's nothing in your life to evidence that faith, your faith is useless. Brothers and sisters, may we never be found holding to a faith that is useless. May we never be found holding to a faith that is empty of good works. So faith that is empty of good works lacks godly belief. These people here, evidenced here, do they, they believe some of the right things. They believe maybe many of the right things, but they don't have a godly belief that causes them to tremble at the understanding of who God is. They don't have a belief that causes them to move just from a head knowledge to a heart knowledge of Christ. They don't have a belief that causes them to move from understanding what Christ has done to responding to what Christ has done in repentance and faith. Finally, I want you to look with me this morning at the examples of faith evidenced by works. James moves in these last verses, in verses 21 to 26, to give us two character studies. To, to demonstrate the fact that faith is evidenced by demonstrable works. Now, the first one he points to is Abraham. Look at verses 21 through 24. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him by his righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You'll see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, I want to reference just a couple of passages of Scripture because as we first read this, James's statement here where he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar seems to directly contradict everything that the Apostle Paul taught right? That we're not saved by works, that we're not justified by our works. And here it seems at face value that James is saying just the opposite. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? But we need to remember what I alluded to at the beginning of our time together today, that Paul is speaking to those who are newly saved, or maybe some who are not yet already, who are not yet saved, but are in that process. So he's helping them to understand that true saving faith is a faith that is not based upon works. It's not based upon effort. It's based upon being a gift from God. We are not justified or saved by any of those things. Whereas James is speaking to those who are well along in their Christian journey. Now, James here is not contradicting what Paul says, but he's emphasizing the fact that Abraham's obedience and faith was evidenced by his actual willingness to do what God had asked him to do. Abraham's faith is what saved him and justified him. 
His belief in God's promises, his belief in God that would provide a way, his belief that God would send a Messiah is what saved Abraham. But the reason we know that Abraham's faith was genuine is the fact that he did what God asked him to do. He evidenced his faith by works. Do you think it would have been enough for God when God said, take Isaac, your only son Isaac, go over to Mount Moriah and make an altar and sacrifice him there if Abraham said, yeah, God, that's a great idea. In my heart, I agree with you every step of the way. And, and I think that's, it's a wonderful plan, God. But I'm just going to go back to doing what I'm doing. I appreciate it. It's, it's, it's a wonderful. I think it's exactly what we should do. But I'm just going to stay here. What would that demonstrate? It would demonstrate that Abraham's faith, no matter what he said about it, was not genuine. Why? Because he didn't do those things that God had commanded him to do. Abraham didn't just agree with God in his heart that he should do those things. He actually got Isaac. He actually made the journey. He actually gathered the wood. He actually built the altar. He actually bound his son. He actually laid him on the altar. He actually raised the knife. He did what God commanded him to do. So he was not justified wholly by his works, but the evidence of his justification was demonstrated by his works. Look at verse 22. You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Because that's how we see whether Abraham's faith was genuine or not. The fact that he did what God had commanded him to do. The fact that he lived it out. And James says because of that, because he did what God commanded him to do, because we can see the evidence of his belief and his faith in God, he says the scripture was fulfilled which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again, remember the context of what James is saying here. He's saying that the evidence of works is a testimony of genuine faith. He's not saying that it's the works alone that save. He's not saying that works can save. He's saying that those things are the evidence of a true and genuine saving faith. So when we look at our lives... We look here at each one of us. We look introspectively. Okay, how do I know that my faith in Christ is real, that my belief in God is real? Well, how is it being fleshed out in your life? Are you kind to others? Do you love as the Scripture says that we should be loving? Do we forgive as the Scripture says that we should be forgiving? Do we show compassion? Do we have a desire to study God's Word? Do we have a desire to, to pray? Do we have a desire to live out the Christian life? All of those things are evidence of a faith that is working, a faith that is being lived out. And as we see those things, we understand that we're being justified by Christ, and it's evidence that our justification is true by the things that we are doing. Now, one commentator put it this way. Salvation is not accomplished through the cooperation of faith and works, 
but faith finds its channel of expression in works. So again, we're not saved by cooperation of our faith and works, but our faith expresses itself through our works and the things that we do. It's an expression of our faith, an expression of our justification. Abraham was not just a man of introspective thought, but he put feet to his faith. James is not contradicting. Excuse me, James here is again showing the contradiction in the thought that the Christian life is one that can be devoid of any kind of evidence. He's directing these believers to understand that just like Abraham, the evidence of his saving faith, the evidence of a life justified by Christ is in doing what God has called us to do as Christians. Now, lastly, Abraham, uh, excuse me, James points to Rahab. And you remember Rahab hid those Israelite spies and protected them and kept them and got them out of the city. And she didn't have to do that. She was not a Jewish person. She was not an Israelite. She had no cause to do that, but she believed in God. She believed in the truth that they proclaimed. And the Scripture tells us that she was justified by that. So Paul says, likewise, in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? In her actions, Rahab had faith and demonstrated her faith by her actions. Again, it would not have been enough for her to just say, well, you know, we should probably get you guys out of the city. But then do nothing about it. No, she demonstrated her faith, she demonstrated her belief that it was true, that it was a genuine faith, by actually doing something. It was demonstrated by her works. And we now, several thousand years later, know that both her faith and her actions were genuine because the Scripture tells us that she was also declared righteous. So these are two examples of people that we can look back at the history of the church who had faith and belief, but their faith and belief moved beyond just an acknowledgement of truth to trusting in God. And that trusting in God moved beyond to an evidence of works, that their faith was real and practical and genuine because they did what God had commanded them to do. Now, James here closes again by repeating the same thing he's repeated now for the third time throughout this passage. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. It seems astonishing to me that there are many people today who say that works are not a necessity for the Christian life who say that there is not a command in the Scripture that as Christians we should live out our faith and there should be evidence of our faith being leaved out. When you see here what James says over and over, verse 17, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Verse 20, faith without works is useless. Verse 26, faith without works is dead. The body without the spirit, the word spirit there is also translated breath. So this is extremely clear. 
if there's a body laying here on the ground and that body has no breath, the two have separated from one another, the body and the spirit, the body and the breath have departed from one another, that body is dead. It cannot do anything. And James says, just in the same way, so also is faith without works. If you have faith that is separated from works, separated from the evidence, separated from the demonstration, he said that faith is dead. It's lifeless. It's useless. It's pointless. Because it's not a saving faith. So let's recap. All of us in this room want to have a saving faith. We don't want to have an empty faith. We don't want to have a vain faith. We want to have a saving faith. A saving faith is one that moves beyond just a verbal acknowledgement of who God is. It moves beyond just an acknowledgement of, of the truth of the Scripture. It moves beyond just a knowledge of all the theological precepts contained in the Bible. It moves to a heart knowledge of putting your faith and trust not just in your knowledge, but in Christ. And then that faith is evidenced by the fact that we do what God has called us to do. Now, I don't want this to be a burden on anyone this morning. None of us in this room are perfect. None of us in this room are doing it exactly the way that we would desire to do. If we were to make a list of the things that we did last week for the Lord, I think the list of things that we wish we would have done for the Lord would probably be far longer. But it's a process. It's a step that we're going through. And again, as I pointed out, James here does not give a list of how many things we have to do each day or each week or each month or each year. What James is saying is there must be evidence. Remember, Jesus talks about many times about trees and bearing fruit. Some trees bear big fruit. Some trees bear small fruit. You're not really concerned about the size of the fruit so much you are as the fact that it's bearing fruit. Right now, it's the time of spring when things start to come out. When Becky and I were walking around the yard the other day and looking at some plants and bushes, and you know, I looked at one, and I said, well, I think that one died over the winter. But you walk over there, and you look real close, and you just see just little parts of green starting to appear on the ends of the plants. And you're happy, right? It's not dead. There's growth there. There's something happening. And it's the same way in our Christian life. There are going to be seasons where we look at our life, we look at the evidence, we look at the works, and we're pleased because we see lots of things happening. And there's going to be other times where it slows down a little bit. There's going to be other times where we're not as satisfied with what we see happening. But what James here is saying is that we should be able to look at our Christian life and at any point in time, whether it's small or whether it's large, to see the evidence of our faith being lived out. This is what he's calling us to. He's calling us to have a living and an active and a vital faith. And the reason it's important, James says, is because without that, it's a useless faith. We want to have this living, breathing, acting, demonstrable faith. Let's pray together. Father, today, Lord, these are challenging words. And Father, forgive us if we read this and our first thought is about someone else. 
Father, forgive us if we're tending to look at others instead of ourselves first. Lord, may we never get to a place where we just assume because we've been in church for a long time, because we've read our Bibles for a long time, that we don't need to look at the true intentions of our hearts. We always must be careful, Father, to ensure that first we have a saving faith, but, Father, also that we don't just believe that our works are going to save us. There must be a picture of both. So, God, guide us to look this morning at our own hearts and lives, to see where we are, to know that we're in you, to see that we see the demonstration of our faith and the things that are happening in our life. And Father, cause us to rejoice when we see that. Sometimes, Father, we are far too neglectful of the small things that happen in our life. But Lord, anytime you change us, anytime you work in us and you mold us and you shape us, no matter how small or seemingly insignificant may be, Father, it is cause for great rejoicing. Lord, you often describe your working of us as a potter with clay. And every step of the process is purposeful. There's not an insignificant move of the potter's hands. Some are large, and more obvious, and some are more subtle and small. But Father, each one of them, you are molding us and shaping us into the person who you desire for us to be in Christ. So Lord, help us to be looking for those moments and rejoicing in every single one of them because we know that you're at work. And we know, Father, that those things and those moments that are happening, Father, are evidence, Lord, of the genuineness of our faith. Lord, God, and direct us this morning. Lord, as we look to you, Lord, we long to be more conformed into the image of Jesus. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.